Good morning, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, after making their case to the Hancock County Commissioners this week, developers of the proposed Border Basin Solar Farm in Hancock County will join us to discuss the ongoing questions and concerns about that project. Also this morning, NASA has launched a new weather satellite, how GOES-T will improve our understanding of the planet's weather and climate, and more. And we have details on an exciting new exhibit and new slate of programs for the new year at the Hancock Historical Museum. Sarah Sisser will tell us what's happening. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022. In addition to the fact that it is Ash Wednesday, it is also National Read Across America Day today, International Rescue Cat Day, National Banana Cream Pie Day, it is Old Stuff Day. I looked at that and I said, oh, a day just uh, for me. Uh, and those, I feel you know, kind of old. Old Stuff Day today, World Teen Mental Wellness Day as well. So uh, observances to make note of today. So uh, did you catch the president's State of the Union last night? Uh, the president spoke for little more than an hour, started off his speech with a strong condemnation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. That was the uh, part of the speech. He spent the fir- first uh I don't know, 15 minutes or so talking about uh, Ukraine and uh, and that. And that was the section that got, as you would expect, the most bipartisan applause and the most bipartisan support in the chamber. Um, he called President Vladimir Putin's unprovoked and unjustified invasion of Ukraine uh, a miscalculation. He said that Putin miscalculated the resolve of the West and the resolve of the Ukrainian people to fight back. The president further announced that the U.S. is banning Russian planes from its airspace. All Russian planes be banned from U.S. airspace. Canada and the European Union have already taken that step, and now we have as well. The Justice Department, he said, is now launching a task force to go after Russian oligarchs, saying, we are coming for your ill-gotten gains, unquote. Um... Ukraine's ambassador to the U.S., Oksana Markarova, was in the House gallery for the speech. And that was one of the things that struck me about the speech last night was the number of I mean, you think about it. This is the state of the union. This is one of the most patriotic, um, most all American things that we do within the structure of our government, right? You have um, all of the members of Congress uh, are invited. Not all of them were there, but they, it's a joint session of Congress. It is the president speaking to a joint uh, session of Congress. Military leaders are there. The Supreme Court justices are there. This is a big, big deal in American politics. And to see Ukrainian flags everywhere, I mean, think about this. Uh, everybody in the chamber, it seemed, were waving the flags of another country at the State of the Union address in Congress. And that was just, that was striking to me when you really think about it. That is how many people were waving the flags of another country. And people uh, dressed in, in the Ukrainian, the colors of the Ukrainian flag. Not in red, white, and blue, but in the colors of the Ukrainian flag. Uh, that was just uh, very, I mean, that, that in and of itself, to me, was a very strong statement. But uh, it was quite, that was the first part of the speech. And then the president moved on to domestic issues, talking about plans to address inflation, which he called his top priority. He uh, also said, uh, and that I thought was significant, the symbolism there, talking about inflation being the top priority, not COVID, which signals a shift in and of itself. Mr. Biden said he can't promise there won't be more COVID variants, but vowed to be ready for them with tests and masks and medications like Pfizer's new pill that can be given uh, to 
someone who is infected to make sure that it uh, remains a mild case. Uh, the president returned to some of the proposals he had put forward that did not pass in the past year. Uh, he segued from medications to fight COVID to letting Medicare negotiate prices for prescription drugs and then piggybacked on that, uh, talking about uh, making the child tax credit, expanded child tax credit permanent and uh, taking action on voting rights. That did those things did not necessarily get as much bipartisan support again, as you would expect. The president did uh, speak about his uh, unity agenda, as he called it, four things he says we should tackle that he believes those from both sides of the aisle can agree on, those being the opioid epidemic, mental health, including children's mental health, veterans' issues, and the fight against cancer. So those were some of the uh, highlights, the long and short of it, of the uh, State of the Union, in case you missed it uh, last night. You know, it was, and I know there were probably a number of people that didn't didn't watch. And I will say this, this president is not an orator. We have had presidents on both sides of the aisle that were very good speakers. President Biden is not one of them. He is now. Now, I know he has a speech impediment that he has worked very hard to overcome and kudos to him for that. But it's something he still struggles with. And there were a number of moments uh, in the uh, speech last night where I don't know whether it was nerves, whether he recognized the uh, largesse of the, the moment. I mean, the, the fact that this is a very big moment in history, especially what's going on in Ukraine. Um, so I don't know if that was on his mind, but there were a number of flubs and, and uh, pauses and you know things like that. And like I said, I know this president has struggled with that, but it is there, it was at some time, at some moments, frankly, uncomfortable, uh, some of his uh, garbled words and, and so on. But uh, anyway, this uh, president is not an orator. One of the things that I thought was disappointing is uh, this was the first State of the Union uh, in a couple of years in which there were really no restrictions for attendance. The past couple of years, uh, it has been very limited, the number of people who have been able to attend the address. This time, it was uh, open to all. You had to have a negative COVID test. But other than that, there, were no, there was no mask requirement. There was no limitation on the number of people. And yet, the chamber appeared to only be about half full. Uh, it didn't look like every member of Congress was there. And uh, that's disappointing. I'd say, I'm, I would like to get back to the time when everybody, it was pretty much a must that you attended. If you were in Congress, it was pretty much a must that you attended. Unless you were on your deathbed, uh, you were at the State of the Union. That was just that was just what you did, regardless of party affiliation and uh, and all of that. Because symbolically, it's a show of unity. And we can't be united if we can't even get into the same room altogether. You know, you don't have to applaud for every cockamamie idea that the president throws out there. And the president always does that, again, regardless of party. So you don't have to applaud. You don't have to stand. You don't have to, you know, uh, do any of that. You can just sit there, especially when the president talks about things that you don't agree with. But to not be there at all. And I think it goes back to, you remember a few years ago when Nancy Pelosi stood up at the end of President Trump's speech and ripped his speech in half. And uh, that really kind of set things off. And since then, uh, it seems like this is just another partisan exercise where the opposing party doesn't even bother to show up for the speech. And I just think that's a bad look. I, I really would like to, I wish we could get back to the a time when everybody goes at least to hear the president out, you know, just out of respect for the office. If you don't agree with what he says, but in any event, it was the State of the Union last night. A couple of other uh, stories among the first things you need to know this morning. We talk about uh, the pandemic uh, coming to an end and uh, uh, masking requirements and so on uh, going away. You know, those disposable face masks uh, may protect us, but they can pose a threat to marine life. This is the latest now. Researchers say they have observed altered behaviors in tide pool animals that appear to be associated with the chemicals leaching from disposable masks that have been discarded. 
including signs of stress and reduced ability to detect mates and reproduce. Marine ecologist Laurent Sarant says we are seeing more and more masks in rocky pools. Discarded masks being thrown away and becoming it's like everything. You got plastic in the oceans and you know all of this trash uh, in our waterways, and now masks are the are the latest. And these issues, they say, could cascade up the food chain and come back to haunt us. The issue. Disposable masks are commonly made of plastic fibers, which are composed of, this, uh, of the same polymer that is previously cho- shown to have negative effects on aquatic life. So, again, everything has a consequence. Speaking of environmental issues, this is kind of interesting. Coors Light has announced a change in their packaging, offering a more earth-friendly option. They talk about plastics in in the ocean and so on. Well, the beer company has announced that they will be ditching the plastic wraps on their six packs and replacing them with cardboard wrap carriers that will be recyclable. Molson Coors says by 2025, all of the company's beer brands will join the wave and switch over to cardboard packaging. Uh. Reports say plastic rings are a great danger to wildlife. And uh, with the prediction that plastic will overpower the ocean by 2050 if things don't change, the company is investing $85 million to change over to cardboard packaging expected to be seen. You start to see this in the coming few months. By 2025, they'll be completely moved over to uh, cardboard packaging. Is that the wave of the future? You're is hoping so. And uh, lastly, speaking of uh, corporate uh, items here, I saw this, something you may want to know. First thing this morning, Starbucks has a new drink. It is the iced toasted vanilla oat milk. <laughs> I knew I was going to mess this up. The iced toasted vanilla oat milk shaken espresso. <laughs> See, now I think they're just trying too hard. <laughs> They're just trying to make this as complicated a name as they can possibly come up with. I don't think they needed a new drink. I, I think the uh, corporate bigwigs at Starbucks said we need a new complicated drink name. <laughs> not, not so much that we need a new drink. We just need something m- even more pretentious on our menu. It is made with Starbucks blonde espresso and notes of caramelized vanilla that is shaken together with ice and topped with oat milk. There are several other spring additions to the Starbucks menu. Starbucks honey and Madagascar vanilla flavored coffee. Starbucks spring day blend and the new 72 ounce Starbucks cold and crafted on tap. But this takes the cake. This drink takes the cake for the most complicated name, the iced Toasted Vanilla Oat Milk Shaken Espresso. <laughs> so good luck remembering that the next time you go to Starbucks, place your order. There you go. Uh, some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, partly sunny skies today with a high of 51. Mostly cloudy tonight, a chance of a rain-snow mix, a low of 25. For the eighth year in a row, Finley has been ranked as the top micropolitan community in the country. Tim Miley, director of Finley-Hancock County Economic Development, says 2021 was another big year. We continue to have companies like Whirlpool and, and Ball and Belfilm and everybody out in Tall Timbers that continue to invest. We had new projects like RL Carriers that will be under construction this year and Amazon came into town. So there's always this mixture between new investment and companies continuing to invest here in the community. The award by Site Selection Magazine is based on job creation, new construction, and capital investment. Get more of our conversation with Miley about the award on the website. Senator Rob Portman of Ohio is calling for the U.S. to revoke its favored trading partner status with Russia. Portman called for an escalation in sanctions on Russia after meeting with the Ukrainian ambassador. The senator also condemned Russia's aggression against the civilian population of Ukraine and said Congress should pass a spending bill to increase military spending to Ukraine.
Governor DeWine has signed a bill into law that protects an athlete's religious expression during school sporting events. The measure signed yesterday by DeWine prohibits school sports regulators from requiring advance waivers or otherwise restricting participants' religious apparel unless it causes a legitimate danger. Bill sponsor Senator Teresa Gavarone researched the legislation based on the experience of Noor Abakuram, a suburban Toledo runner disqualified over her hijab in 2019. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. The Finley Rotary Club is accepting nominations for this year's Golden Apple Awards. The Rotary's Golden Apple Awards signify teaching excellence and are awarded annually to outstanding teachers in the elementary, middle, and high schools of Finley and Hancock County. Liberty Benton's Ray Wolf was one of the winners last year. I'm just lucky to have received such a great education in Hancock County. I went to Van Buren K-12 and had some amazing teachers at Van Buren. And if you know somebody that you would like to nominate, we have a link to the nomination form on the website. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. And now to our cover story this morning. Developers of a proposed couple of uh, proposed solar farms in Hancock County uh, making their case to the Hancock County commissioners this week. And uh, we are joined in the studio by... Uh, Rob Kalbus from uh, South Branch, uh, and I have to apologize because earlier we were saying uh, the uh, border basin, and, and this is actually two solar projects, right? These are separate solar projects. That's correct. So, uh, and, and South Branch is, is one of them, though. Talk a little bit about some of the uh, ongoing questions and concerns uh, that folks have uh, had about the project. I don't know, maybe this is uh, a bit of uh, me being a cynic, um, but I'm curious, you were not necessarily asked by the commissioners to come in and speak, right? You were, uh, came in to uh, address the commissioners. Was there a specific reason for that? It seems odd that you wouldn't. You would come without being asked. Sure. The the, the purpose yesterday was really to uh, to talk to the commissioners about um, the topic of exclusion zones. Uh, exclusion zones are a um, p- part of a lead piece of legislation that was passed uh, last summer. Um, that's returning a little bit of local control to the regulation of uh, solar and uh, wind de- uh, development um, siting. And so we uh, wanted to make sure the commissioners were informed. We also heard some concerns about uh, the, uh, the tax uh, or, uh, structure, the, the pilot agreement, mm-hmm. um, the payment in lieu of taxes mm-hmm. structure that was uh, agreed to uh, for both projects. And so we wanted to address those issues. That has been uh, one of the things that some of the uh, critics of the uh, plans have seized on. Explain why that is not the concern that some people believe it is. Absolutely. So the, the pilot um, is, is really a way of um, locking in payment um, at a certain level for the life of the project. It creates uncertainty. Uh, uh, create certainty around those payments mm-hmm. uh, and the schedule of payments. Um, w- when you when you compare that to uh, a personal property tax assessment, um, there's a lot of benefits that the pilot offers. One of those is that uh, it can't be challenged. So the county also has certainty. Um, uh, you know, the uh, personal property tax is based on fair market value of the, of the uh, property, mm-hmm. and that is subject to interpretation and revision. Uh, and that creates uncertainty for the county. So both the developer and the county um, get certainty through that pilot program. And when it when you actually look at the money, uh, it, it it probably comes out a little higher. Uh, the pilot does over time. So actually higher that's uh, correct tax uh, income than uh, would otherwise uh, be generated from that parcel of land. Um, in addition to the the money, there have been some other. Uh, concerns pushback from uh, nearby residents uh, about the size of the project, the um, the aesthetics of the project, the uh, uh, taking fertile farmland out of production, so on and so forth. Are those pretty common concerns that you hear in projects that you do of this nature? Well, Leeward, you know, we really believe in engaging early and often with the community. Uh, and so we are constantly um, taking in that feedback that we hear and uh, adjusting pl- um, our plans for development based on what we hear. So every every site really is unique. Uh, and so we try to accommodate uh, as much of that feedback uh, as is feasible. Uh, and so uh, over time, uh, the project design has evolved. 
We've scaled back the project, for example, from about a thousand acre footprint to a 700 acre footprint. Mm -hmm. Uh, And those uh, modifications also included uh, enhancements to our drain tile mitigation plan. Uh, We've enhanced our vegetation, uh, vegetative buffers that we uh, provide uh, and provided a couple other uh, unique little enhancements here and there. Because uh, it, uh, well, number a couple of points uh, on that. It seems like there are always uh, some of that uh, that NIMBY syndrome that you get that we're not necessarily uh, opposed to this project, but I don't want to not in my backyard kind of kind of thing. And yeah. it, that's fairly common. Well, you know, no one likes change. Uh, you know, when I changed from bacon and eggs to to oatmeal, um, that was hard <laughs> to, to to digest for yeah. a while. Uh, and, you know, not everybody is excited about solar technology as we are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we do have to counter a bit of that from time to time. But I think the benefits that we offer to the community are really quite compelling. The money that goes into the Arcadia school system, for example, over $600,000 a year estimated based on our, our pilot payment and uh, expected nameplate capacity. Uh, that's that's very exciting to me, and I think a lot of the community um, uh, too. Which goes back to the revenue issue that we were talking about before, because uh, I wonder, is it a question of, as you were saying, overcoming uh, those objections and, and working with the community uh, on those concerns or simply pushing ahead despite them? Well, no, it's it, like I said, it's really responding to the feedback, listening, and trying to understand what those concerns are really all about and 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 how we can work with the community to address them um so it, it, you know there are some concerns that are are um a, a little less than um uh rational um but uh, there's also a lot of very very um very um important concerns that we need to listen to mm-hmm. and respond to yeah uh, and so we have to balance that out uh, also with us in the uh, studio this morning, economic development, uh, Ele- economic development Director Tim Miley. I'll spit it out here. It's still very <laughs> early in the morning. Uh, Tim, you have been a very strong supporter of uh, this project, uh, both for uh, the South Branch uh, project and the Border Basin uh, project. Why? What is uh, what from your standpoint? Is it, is it simply because here we have another major investment into, into the community or is it something broader than that? It's two things, really, Chris. So Rob mentioned the money that goes to uh, the payment in lieu of taxes, and their project's close to 600000 for Arcadia. Border Basin will we'll take that over to a million dollars for the local school district. The county general fund will receive over $800,000 for both projects. So some significant revenue for the next 30 years. That's annually for the next 30 years. Um, but more importantly, we're continuing to see a change. I communicated to the commissioners yesterday that the leads that we're starting to see that could be for data centers, that could be for advanced manufacturing, that they are requiring green energy. And where we started the conversation this morning, where Rob mentioned the exclusion zones, we have all, every township but one that has asked the commissioners to exclude wind and solar in their townships. And so you take a look like Allen Township, where Border Basin or, or, or Solar or South Branch is not at. So there's no project going through the power siting board for them but they would like to restrict that. And that's where we're looking to locate some of these larger projects. So we want them to judge every project on its merit. And Senate Bill 52 that Rob mentioned gives the commissioner's ability to just do that. So if there's a a solar or wind project in the future, post Senate Bill 52, the first stop they have to make before the power siting board is county commissioners. And the county commissioners have the ability to approve it, amend it, or deny it before they even go to the state. And then post that, they get two more says as it goes. So I'm just saying, let's not ban them before we even know what's coming. And you uh, alluded to this. I, we were uh, kind of joking, half-joking a little bit before we went on the air, that the uh, main story here is <laughs> this uh, the solar farm uh, projects and not the fact that uh, Finley has just been named top metropolitan area for the eighth year in a row, right. which is a big deal, but it's now almost starting to become old hat. But does this kind of play into that? As you were mentioning, uh, a lot of these projects are looking for uh, green energy investments in communities that they invest in. So does this become part of that quote-unquote Findlay formula? It does. And that, that's why we got to make sure that we're creating the – we always talk about creating the environment for investment. This is part of it. And uh, if the exclusion zones happen, it changes what the opportunities are. And we're already seeing companies here locally, One Energy, which is not part of this discussion or Senate Bill 52, mm-hmm. but you look at some of our mainstay corporations, Whirlpool, Ball, Valfilm, who's now been here for close to 10 years, 
and Marathon down in Wyandotte County are all using One Energy. They've all and, invested. In and the point that came out yesterday, uh, this is not a green movement. This is economical. The technology has advanced to a point mm-hmm. where companies want to have this and lower their energy costs. So uh, it's an important tool. And as I said, the leads that we're seeing are coming in, leads over a billion dollars capital investment, have a specific section that say we need to have uh, renewable as an option. So, Rob, about uh, 30 seconds or so uh, left. What is next in this process? So the next step in the process is really uh, the uh, one of the final stages of our uh, OPSB um, uh, Ohio Power Siding Board um, uh, certificate process. And so that will include a, a public hearing uh, uh, as well as an evidentiary hearing uh, and then uh, a ruling on, on the project. So we will look forward to uh, that. Again, uh, uh, Rob uh, Kalbus from uh, South Branch uh, with us, Economic Development uh, Director Tim Miley, uh, also uh, talking about the uh, latest developments in these uh, solar farm uh, projects uh, that are uh, moving forward through the process. Gentlemen, thank you both for uh, talk, uh, dropping by. We appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, anyone who is even casually familiar with the science of meteorology knows that satellite technology is critical to understanding weather patterns and forecasting weather events in the modern day. Well, yesterday, NASA launched a new weather satellite to take this to the next level and joining us to explain how it will help further improve our understanding of the planet's weather and climate is NASA Deputy Program Director Ed Grigsby. And so this is the GOES-T satellite. This is more than just simply replacing a decommissioned satellite, right? There is new technology on board this contraption. Absolutely. Absolutely. GOES-T is the third in the GOES-R series. Um, we launched in 2016, we launched GOES-R, which became the East, GOES-East, which is GOES-16. And in 2018, we launched GOES-S, which is GOES-17 on orbit in the West Coast. Um, GOES-T is uh, really a, a, a little better version of GOES-16 and 17 mm-hmm. to replace the GOES-West position um, once we get it commissioned uh, on orbit. Okay, so it is actually uh, replacing an older satellite, but it's also bringing uh, new technology to the table. So explain how all of this uh, helps forecasters get uh, accurate weather data, even in some cases, life-saving weather data. Oh, absolutely. GOES-T is really the completion of that uh, constellation. And it's that constellation is the Western Hemisphere's sole persistent vision of the the atmosphere and the the images that you see every day on whatever weather uh, prediction site you're looking at mm-hmm. goes provides those images we monitor moisture we monitor clouds we monitor severe weather we monitor lightning and we monitor space weather so those things actually um, actually, are continuous, 24 hours a day, every day, year-round. So, goes, no, I was going to yes, say, so, so we have um, uh, Doppler radar and computer models and so on, a lot of ground-based, land-based technology for weather forecasting. It seems like there's some overlap here. Why do we need the satellite in addition to that? Uh, Ghost, Ghost really provides the evolution before during the evolution of the weather, whatever weather event it is, uh, and after. So it's used in, in emergency management before, during, and after, and it's used in recovery after any weather, severe weather event. Um, that persistence of vision is not available anywhere else. So does this uh, improve technology when you uh, are able to allow people to see these weather events from space? Does that mean that we will no longer eventually have to put human scientists into harm's way to know what's happening? I mean, I'm thinking like hurricane hunters and uh, those who go into uh, hot zones to study volcanic activity, that kind of thing. Um, there's there's always going to be a need to know situational awareness with the hurricane hunters or any type of uh, emergency situation. You'll always have to have people on the ground looking at 
tactically what's happening. Goes R and goes S and goes T, uh, the Goes R series really provides the synoptic view for where to place those people and keep hmm. them out of harm's way and to be very strategic on how to manage that emergency, whatever it might be. You also mentioned, and I thought this was uh, really, uh, really fascinating, uh, some of the science behind this, uh, that this will observe more than just the weather on Earth that you can monitor space weather. Uh, with, uh, first of all, what is space weather? Because if I remember from my high school science days uh, many years ago, uh, weather is an atmospheric thing. So what is space weather and how does this monitor that? Why do we monitor that? Well, that's really a great question. Uh, space weather is all about the sun and how the sun affects our atmosphere. So we monitor the sun. The sun has uh, an 11-year cycle, and that 11-year cycle includes coronal mass ejections. And you you probably have heard the about the aurora borealis all of a sudden becoming uh, blooming, and mm -hmm. those are really high part high energy particles exciting the upper atmosphere. So we monitor those things. Solar eruptions can affect power systems, our power grid on Earth. It can affect aviation. Um, overflights, it can affect people. It can affect people flying airplanes, it can affect people on the ISS, it can affect people on the ground. Um, so the solar solar looking instruments of SUVI, Exus, and SICE really monitor those high energy particles and coronal mass ejections that are could be hazardous to us. I would imagine that would also be critical as uh, we talk more about uh, sending men back to the moon, perhaps uh, onto Mars, other planets uh, in the future. This will be critical information to know for that purpose as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm sure you've heard about radiation hazards. Mm -hmm. And that radiation is really coming from the sun. And that can affect astronauts and any of uh, any of our voyagers in the future. So, uh, what else does uh, does the GOES satellites uh, do, including this new one? Are there other industries that they uh, provide uh, help for, assistance for, in addition to helping meteorologists? Oh, absolutely! If you can name an industry, the GOES satellite helps it. There, we have we have tried to go out and find an industry that it doesn't affect. We provide value to transportation, to emergency managers, as I said before multiple mm -hmm. times. Uh, we provide weather for aviation. We provide uh, information to, to the banking industry. We provide information to the financial districts. It's mm -hmm. just amazing the amount of... Uh, of users that are out there that use the ghost data. Uh, all kinds of uh, applications for this. Again, NASA Deputy Program Director Ed Grigsby with us this morning talking about the uh, most recent launch of this uh, GOES-T satellite this week. And where do folks get more information? We've kind of scratched the surface on uh, what this is all about, uh, but you have a whole section of your website where folks can dig in a little deeper on this, right? Absolutely. Uh, NOAA hosts a website. Uh, go to NOAA.gov slash ghost t and you can find out all the information you want on the ghost satellite system we interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert and today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service more or less of hancock county veterans services uh this from uh southern california uh men in uh, los angeles uh claims that he was not driving a Bentley that crashed into multiple parked cars, despite the fact that he was in the driver's seat. <laughs> yeah, I was in the driver's seat, but I wasn't driving. Uh, surveillance footage shows the Bentley speeding through a residential neighborhood before losing control and slamming into at least three parked cars. The man told first responders that he switched seats with his friend, uh, saying, ask him, ask anybody. <laughs> the man was rushed to the hospital. 
in serious condition. Another person was captured on video receiving medical attention, but their involvement in the crash is unclear. That's, I was in the uh, driver's seat, but I wasn't driving. <clears throat> Just ask anyone. Just ask anyone. Well, I guess evidence shows that he wasn't really driving. He was crashing. He, so he wasn't driving. At least he wasn't driving well. I guess. I just thought that was kind of interesting and odd, odd excuse. <laughs> I mean, cops have heard it all. People trying to get out of uh, responsibility for accidents, speeding, that kind of thing. <laughs> That's got to be a unique excuse. I was in the driver's seat, but I was not driving. Was... Okay. Um, this actually raised some eyebrows for me, in the, and I saw this uh, story in the news. Woman in Washington state is accused of stabbing her boyfriend with a sword... While the uh, pair were staying at a motel, the uh, victim called 911 to report the incident. Clark County uh, Sheriff's Office deputies say the victim and one Tednesha Lee Dixon were involved in an argument when she grabbed the four foot long sword and stabbed him. He is expected to recover. So fortunately, not a life threatening uh, injury. It could have been very easily. What made me, you know, what raised my eyebrow on this, uh, who takes a sword along with them when they go to a motel? <laughs> what? <laughs> who takes who takes a sword with it? And here's uh, the kicker on this uh, story. It was the victim's sword. It was his sword that she grabbed and stabbed him with, his own sword. So maybe next time, buddy, you leave the sword at home. No, that's that's just a suggestion. Who takes a sword with them when they go away for the weekend? But, uh, honey, have you got everything? Have you packed the bathroom bag? Have you got a uh, you know enough uh, clean pairs of socks? And uh, oh, don't forget to grab the sword. <laughs> uh, let's see. From merry old England, uh, a, a woman in the UK. Um, the the only thing that I've got is. Uh, Brocard, Brocard or Brocardi. Uh, she's uh, 38 years old. It's the only name that I have. Uh, she claims she is in a relationship with the spirit of a Victorian soldier. She says she met and fell in love with Eduardo, the ghost, last year after he appeared in her home in Oxfordshire. Things got serious when the two got engaged in November of last year. Brocard claims that since she has announced her engagement, she has had to deal with messages from a number of living men telling her she should ditch her ghost lover and give them a chance instead. She, she claims Eduardo is furious about these messages and she's receiving, and so she avoids engaging with uh, other people. Uh, online and the messages they are sending. She also added it was scary getting hundreds of messages per hour from these men, as opposed to not being scary at all to be engaged to a ghost. Takes all kinds, I guess. Also from the UK, uh, a woman has been taken to court for criminal damage <laughs> after she installed her own speed bumps outside of her country, the road outside of her country cottage to try and get drivers to slow down. <laughs> People were driving too fast, and apparently the village wouldn't do anything about it, so she took matters into her own hands and created a speed bump using rocks from her property that <laughs> she placed in the road. Andrea Wilkinson learned that you're not allowed to do that. Not really allowed to make your own speed bump. She's been uh, charged after one driver did not see the speed bump, drove over it, and caused about $1,600 worth of damage uh, to their vehicle. Ms. Wilkinson has been uh, taken to court and was found not guilty, though. So, uh, apparently, the uh, jury sided uh, with her. But uh, still, probably not a good idea to do your own, create your own speed bumps of your, of your home. Don't want to give any anybody any ideas there. And finally, in the uh, broken news, really odd stories today. Three people were taken to the hospital after a birthday party involving some 100 teenagers got out of control. Um, this is in Colorado, uh, in Arapahoe County, uh, outside of Denver. 
the homeowners were hosting a birthday party for their 18-year-old grandson, and somehow word of the party got leaked on social media, and everyone thought that it was just an open house, apparently, and people started showing up, and more and more and more showed up until there were over 100, maybe as many as 150 teenagers. And uh, here's the here's the problem, uh, is that they were jumping around, dancing, and the floor of the house collapsed. <laughs> there were so many people there. It's amazing that no one was seriously injured, said Scott Richardson, special operations chief for the uh, local uh, sheriff, sheriffs and rescue department. Uh, Mr. Richardson said he's never before seen a floor collapse like that. Uh, it's uh, they said it's not the static weight of people just standing on the floor, but then when they started jumping up and down, <laughs> that creates a shock load on the floor, and eventually it just gave out, couldn't handle it anymore. Fortunately, again, three people taken to the hospital, but nobody seriously injured. The floor collapsed. <laughs> Birthday party that got out of hand. My goodness. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Agriculture is a big deal in the Buckeye State. That's why WFIN keeps you informed throughout the day with reports on Ohio's largest industry. This is Dale Menyo from the Ohio Agnet. We start your weekday mornings at 5.30 and 7.35 with that day's farm news. Then a midday update at 10.45, markets at 11.15, and the closing numbers weekday afternoons at 5.45. Stay up to date with the latest agricultural information weekdays on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. How often does this happen? I, I am guilty of this. I know you're probably guilty of it, too. Uh, you're getting ready for a work in the morning or, you know, going someplace special for a night out or maybe going to church on Sunday. And you, you think, I have nothing to wear. When in reality, that's not true. You probably have a closet full of clothes, some of which you maybe even never worn before. Well, you are not alone, despite the fact that we have plenty of clothes. People complain that they have nothing to wear an average of six times a month. (laughs) This from a recent poll of 2,000 adults. One of the uh, notable findings in this survey was that people had... An average of $268.44 worth of clothing that they had never worn hanging in their closet or sitting in a drawer somewhere. Nearly $300 of of stuff that we've never worn. And we're complaining that we have nothing to wear. About 8 in 10 people in this poll say that they regularly wear the same outfits over and over and over again again despite the fact that we have three hundred dollars of clothes that we've we've never worn we're wearing the same things over and over only six percent of adults said that they wore everything in their wardrobe at least once only six percent the research brings insight into how people shop nowadays that was the idea of the survey uh, was to uh, figure out how people shop nowadays the growing shift away from speed purchasing for example 31% of 18 to 24-year-olds impulsively bought clothes because they were part of a trend, only to realize later that their purchase wasn't so great after all, just was a kind of a dumb trend or the, you know, it may have been uh, in style, but it doesn't look good on them, you know? And again, we've all done that at one point. point. The the, uh, folks behind the poll uh, which is uh, Stitch Fix, uh, actually, the uh, online uh, outfitter. They say these uh, findings highlight a real shift in consumer mindset when it comes to the way we shop. It's clear, they say, that people want a smarter, more considered approach to investing in clothing and style and are seeking ways to make their wardrobes work harder for longer. And obviously that goes to... You know, the business model of Stitch Fix and you know, what they do online. If you've ever been to a website, you know what I'm talking about there. But uh, it was interesting uh, results. It obviously, might be skewed a little bit based on who commissioned the research. But 
still interesting nonetheless. I found that to be fascinating. Six percent, only six percent of us say that we have worn everything in our wardrobe at least once. Now I'm going to have to go home after I get uh, done here. I'm going to have to go home and, and look through my closet and say and figure out, is there something in here that, I, that I've bought or maybe that I've been given as a gift? That's what I find is uh, often happens is that I've given been given something as a gift, maybe at Christmas time or whatever, and it just isn't quite my style. And for whatever reason, I hang on to it rather than reselling it or donating it or returning it or whatever. And it just sits there and I never wear it. But uh, in any event, I'm sure that I've got stuff like everybody in the closet that I've never worn. Sarah Sisser is here from the Hancock Historical Museum, getting back into the swing of things after taking the month of January off. And uh, so now you really get uh, into everything. We've got the brown bag lunch. Had a brown bag lunch uh, last month, but... We attempted to have a brown bag lunch last month, and oh, then the weather true. impeded. Yeah, the weather. So, I forgot about that. Um, yeah. We're excited to be uh, yeah, kicking off our brown bag lunches again. So that's always the first Thursday of the month over the lunch hour. We encourage people to get there a little bit early because we usually have a good crowd. Mm-hmm. Um, so at noon this Thursday, tomorrow, uh, on the 3rd, we will have Barb Lockard and Karen Street. They are sisters. Um, it just so happens that Barb Lockard is my mother. Karen Street is my oh, aunt. How about that? Um, so my mother, Barb, has uh, been in Finley for about 40 years, um, but she and Karen grew up on the west side of Cincinnati, very much a blue-collar community. They mm-hmm. were um, from German Catholic family. Uh, their father, my grandfather, was a World War II veteran. Uh, my grandmother was um, a great entertainer and uh, a dancer as well, and just a real character. But my mother has um, started writing about her childhood in the 1950s, mm-hmm. and I think she had sort of an iconic 1950s upbringing. So she does write a weekly blog that's developed something of a following, and she has now um, written two books. So she is going to be discussing her 1950s upbringing along with her sister, um, and they're definitely going to have a, a humorous take on growing up. I was going to say, that uh, sounds like it's going to be a lot of fun. It definitely yeah. is. I know that they have purchased some 1950s candy to pass out to the crowd, and it'll be very interactive. So if you grew up in the 50s or it's an era you uh, you think a lot about, um, I would encourage people to come out. It'll be a fun a fun lunch hour. Yeah, so that is uh, happening tomorrow, later on in the month. As we mentioned, uh, Classic Movie Night is back. That's right. That's another monthly recurring program that we have uh, kicking off this month on the 18th. We typically do Classic Movie Night the third Friday of each month um, at 7 o'clock. And this month we will be screening 42nd Street. So for those who haven't been to Classic Movie Night before, it is just a great evening. It's free and open to the public. Um, Our facilitators, Jerry Sister and Joy Bennett, do quite a bit of research leading up to the program. So they'll tell you a little bit about the history of the film and sort of the historical context surrounding it. Then we'll watch the movie. If you want to stick around afterwards, there's some great guided discussion as well. So we have refreshments, again, free and open to the public. It's a fun date night, yeah. 7 p.m. on the 18th. What a classic. I mean, you know, talk about classic movie night. It didn't get any more classic than 42nd Street. Yes, so. and you can go on our website and see the full calendar of classic movie nights for the year. Um, and they are all over the place this year. We have some more modern classics. We have some um, 1950s sci-fi films that we're going to be doing. So. Awesome. Um, it should be a lot of fun. So circle that on the uh, calendar uh, as well. Also, uh, with the new year, you've got a new exhibit uh, at the uh, museum. Always new things to uh, to see, but right. uh, the highlight uh, this year takes us back to more modern history. That's right. So um, you've heard me now talk about two programs with the 1950s, mm-hmm. and we have something of um, a theme going this year with the <laughs> mid-century. So 1950s, 1960s, um, and our new exhibit that we're super proud of and, and really excited about is about the local rock and roll bands that were here in Finley in the 1960s and some of the live music venues that they played at. And um, this has already gained a lot of traction. We've had a lot of um, local media attention for this exhibit, and we've been getting just a ton of visitors coming in and reminiscing about um, these bands that played, uh, a lot of folks coming in and seeing people they went to high school with and Mm -hmm. catching up uh, over the exhibit. The exhibit is interactive. So when you see it in person, we have QR codes embedded in that exhibit that you can then scan with your smartphone and listen to the recordings of the bands oh, um, wow. while you're viewing the exhibit. You can also go on our website and see an entirely um, virtual component of this exhibit. So HancockHistoricalMuseum.org. You can read a lot about the different bands that are featured. You can listen to their to their music. Um, it's just been a lot of fun. It's required a lot of research on the part of 
um, our archivist and curator, Joy Bennett, as well as um, our local judge, Reginald Routson. Reg has been uh, assisting with this exhibit since its inception, and I really want to thank him for all of his efforts. Um, certainly some of these bands I know he watched in their heyday mm-hmm. and um, was inspired by some of these musicians, and so it was important for him to capture this history, and it's just been a fun ride in, in capturing this history together. You know, we talk about this being uh, you know more modern history, but this is, I mean, 60 years ago yeah. now, It's which is hard to believe, but it's not so far back in our past that, like you said, people can still remember and tell stories, and you know, so this is really accessible history. That's exactly right, and I think that's what's so fun about doing things um, with that more modern history is that um, people have those lived experiences that they mm-hmm. can share yeah. um, and, and really reminisce. And so it's a feel-good exhibit. And um, we've also taken the opportunity to start recording some of the oral histories of these band members as we've been able to locate them. Some are still local, some not. Um, and so we've been recording those, and you can also listen to those stories uh, on our website as well. So it's been a really comprehensive effort. Um, the exhibit will be up all year long, and you can view the exhibit just with regular admission at the museum. So I really encourage people to stop out yeah. and, and see it. Bring the kids, bring the grandkids. Absolutely, yeah. Because that's got to be uh, part of the fun, too, is uh, not only those folks who are are there and, and reminiscing it in sort of a first-person type of uh, thing, but sharing those stories with, again, yes. because this is 60 years ago, there are a lot of people who don't have that first-hand uh, memory. That's so. right. So sharing those memories and um, I just think that that music and the era resonates mm-hmm. with uh, a few generations. Yeah. So I'm seeing people come together sort of intergenerational as they view this exhibit um, on Sundays when we've been open and people have been coming in. Um, I'm, I'm seeing them dance sometimes. So. <laughs> and like, and dancing is uh, permitted in the yes. museum. So <laughs> yes. uh, I want to make sure that, uh, you know, we uh, get that. It's no uh, footloose rules. It's, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, Footloose is not quite that era yet, yeah. but getting close. I mean, <laughs> yeah. that's my era now, and we're getting close to that, but that's a whole different story. So, uh, again, the uh, band uh, exhibit is going to be uh, throughout the year, and anytime, you know, it's with the regular museum admission, as you yep. say. What uh, What are the hours for the museum? So, we are open Wednesday through Friday, 10 to 4, and then Sundays, as I mentioned, 1 to 4, and we've okay. been getting a lot of people coming out on Sundays. Um Again, come out and see the new exhibit. Come out and see everything that we have to offer. People are always surprised when they come to the museum. If it's been a while since you've been there or you've never been before, we have a lot to offer. Several buildings that you can tour. Um, you can easily spend an afternoon at our museum. Yeah, I, I we've said that before. It's just you'd be surprised at just how large the campus is. When you drive by, you see the house, but then there's so much more Absolutely. than just that. Uh, again, Brown Bag Lunch Lecture uh, tomorrow, uh, beginning at noon. That's going to be a lot of fun. Classic Movie Night is coming up on the 18th, the 18th at 7 okay. o'clock. Um, and that's free and open to the public. And uh, for Brown Bag Lectures, we'd love... We're encouraging reservations. You don't need one, but it gives us a nice idea of how many people are coming. So give us a call if you're thinking about coming. You also do have the ability to view that brown bag lecture tomorrow uh, through Zoom. So come out to the museum or uh, view on Zoom if you like and give us a call for the link to that. Very good. More details on our webpage, of course, goodmornings.net. Sarah Sisser at the Hancock Historical Museum. Thanks very much. Thank you, Chris. And that will wrap up our podcast for today. Thanks to all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. And remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about on the show each day at our webpage. That is goodmornings.net. You can also sign up for our daily email newsletter, connect with us on social media and more. It all starts online at goodmornings.net, our little corner of the World Wide Web. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.